Baseball, 1911. Yeah, and we're, I, I'm liking this evening's star. Um, yeah, I probably, for the New York coverage, I'm going to have to refer back to the evening world. But this is just so much nicer. And we've got a photo of what appears to be, it's not a very clear photo, but you can see workmen working on some bleachers or something. And it's labeled finishing touches being put on grandstand. And if for some reason you wish to see these yourself, these old newspapers, they are available on the Library of Congress website, uh, they're chronicling America, historic American newspapers, which is provided to us by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Oh, the humanity. But yeah, this evening's star, and it's so many newspapers. I mean, you are talking about a vast archive with like 20 mil million pages of old news, and that just shivers my timbers so to speak but uh i have discovered i may have even skipped something yesterday they have not only a sports page but two sports pages it would appear and the headline uh, we are looking at april 7th 1911 johnson will not be traded if he refuses to accept terms offered. Club will stand pat on salary offered Johnson. Nationals will go through season without its star pitcher unless he accepts $6,500 offered him. And uh, this is out of Atlanta. First, you have a little short squib, which I assume is an extra that's patched on top, so we'll read that first. Walter Johnson to go home this afternoon, special dispatch to the star. Unless Walter Johnson changes his mind at the last moment, he will leave for his home. At Coffeyville, Kansas, at 4.10 this afternoon, there was no Further conference between McAleer and the disgruntled pitcher this morning. And players seem to think that Johnson is determined not to accept the club's terms. McAleer says that he is through trying to convince Johnson of the error of his way and that if Johnson goes home, he will be suspended the day the season opens. And the actual body of the article, Walter Johnson will have to sign at the club's terms or remain idle this season. That's what manager McAleer's order to Johnson to proceed to his home at Coffeyville, Kansas, means in a nutshell. When the club offered its star pitcher $6,500 for the coming season, it announced that it would stand pat on this figure and it would rather... And that rather than make any further concessions to Johnson, it would go through the season without him. Johnson evidently thought that there was a chance for him to get what he demanded, 7500 and he did not sign. In sending Johnson home, McAleer took a step in the right direction. If a club is sincere in its stand against any further increase to Johnson, then there's no use of having him around the training camp unless he intends to accept those terms. 
The amount offered Johnson is greater than any received by any pitcher in the American League and next to Cobb's the biggest salary of any player in the league. Johnson undoubtedly is a great pitcher. In the opinion of many, he has the making of the greatest of them all, but his demands are exorbitant and even his admirers are taking a stand against him with club. Johnson cannot be blamed for making the effort to get as much salary as possible, but if he goes to his home rather than accept the salary offered, he is making a serious mistake. The Washington club has been liberal with Johnson, though there are many clubs in the American League better fortified to pay high salaries. This fact has never been considered in naming Johnson's salary. He has been offered more than any other pitcher in the league is receiving, which is as far as the club can be expected to go. Once it is home, Johnson will remain there until he makes up his mind, unless he makes up his mind, to report for the amount offered. The club will make no further overtures to its star pitcher. If he fails to be in the fold by the opening day, he will be suspended in accordance with baseball law, and when he is reinstated, he must pay a fine to the commission. It is naturally expected that once the breach between the club and Johnson is widened, there will be numerous offers of trades for Johnson. It can be stated positively that no offer that can be made will be accepted. Furthermore, it is extremely doubtful if any club would care to take Johnson in view of the fact that he has such exalted ideas about the salary he should receive. Be, but be that as it may, the Washington club will not part with Johnson. He must play here for the salary offered or remain idle. Accepting a very few independent leagues, which could hardly afford to pay him more than a couple hundred dollars in a month, there are no outlaw leagues now to which Johnson could jump, so that if he should fail to join the Nationals, he would suffer a heavy financial loss. The Nationals without Johnson on the pitching staff, of course, do not present so formidable a front, and perhaps the club, too, would be the loser by having him remain at home. But when a player is offered a princely salary, the best in the league for a pitcher, as is Johnson, public sentiment will naturally be with the club. In his dealings with the club, Johnson has always proved himself in possession of a splendid business head, so good a one, in fact, that those familiar with the transactions in which he has figured feel certain that he is too wise to throw away $6,500 this year in an effort to gain a $1,000 increase. Johnson has invested considerable money in a farm at Coffeeville. It is understood that he has not yet liquidated the entire indebtedness incurred in its purchase. In other words, he needs money to gain full possession and develop his property. To hold out after the first salary day begins would be a severe setback for his ambitions, and it is not believed he will take such a course. However, if Johnson stays pat and goes to Coffeeville, the club will make no further effort to bring him into the fold. The club feels that it has treated Johnson most liberally. It would probably not hesitate to pay him a salary of $7,500 per season if he would sign a three-year contract. But Johnson turned down that sort of a proposition, making known the fact that he intends to get 
$27,000 for his services the next three years, whether he is signed at a one- or three-year contract this spring. The club, naturally, does not want to lose Johnson. He is its most valuable asset among the players, and yet it does not feel that it should be asked to make the concessions which Johnson demands. Though the Nationals may have a good pitching staff without Johnson, it stands to reason that he will be sadly missed. The club is not trying to belittle the pitcher's ability now that it seems the breach between them has widened. It realizes that it is taking a long chance to go into the campaign without Johnson on the team, but under the circumstances, the club cannot see any alternative. The leaving of Corbin at Atlanta probably means that Conway will be carried as the extra outfielder all season. The manner in which this youngster is hitting the ball warrants McAleer's action to hold on to him, for should there be a slump in hitting on the part of either Lelevelt or Gessler, Conway would be able to fill either of these positions nicely. The return of Swain to Vancouver was a foregone conclusion, for there was nothing about the big fellow's work which should recommend him to a major league team. Dolly Gray is showing so much better form this spring that he must be looked for to prove a winning pitcher for the team this season. It is the first time in three seasons that Gray has been in good condition early this spring. He seems capable of going any route, even this early, and had he worked for the regulars in the games at Atlanta where he would have been afforded good support, he would probably have not have lost a game there. Gray like former years, worked all winter long. Every day he would pitch for about 15 minutes, and the result was that he reported in perfect condition. According to Mike Peho, Bob Groom is another pitcher on the local staff who's going to show better advantage this year, providing he gets off well. Bob cannot stand criticism, and it is believed that if he shows good form right from the outset of the season, the patrons of the game here will encourage him. In which event, he may have a good year, for when it comes to having deceptive deliveries, groom classes with the best pitchers in the country. It would seem, too, that in Bill Ote, McAleer has picked up a valuable left-hander. Like Gray, he, too, has been pitching high-class ball at Atlanta. Walker is in better fettle than last year. He is strong and healthy, something that he was not at any time during the last season. Tom Hughes will be as good as ever as soon as his arm comes around, and it will probably take several weeks of hot weather to bring him around to good. Then there are Sherry and Bussy, two recruits who have shown up well in the practice games, who may be able to be of much service to the team. In the hour of defeat, Clark Griffith, manager of the Cincinnati Reds, displayed commendable sportsmanship when he made this comment monday chase is playing 100 percent better ball right now than at any other time in his career i regard him as the greatest baseball player the world has ever known he has a magnificent team in the highlanders and the strongest staff of pitchers new york ever had the hillimes look like a good bet to me yeah, very kind words. Nationals will practice at Atlanta again next spring. Conway and Miller improving under McAleer's coaching. 
regulars and shamrocks hooked up in tie game. Atlanta, Georgia, April 7th. The Washington Americans will return to Atlanta in 1912 for spring training. This was the announcement made by James McAleer Thursday night after a conference with President Heisman of the local club in the afternoon. This announcement does not come as a surprise as McAleer was contemplating returning to Atlanta for over a week, and the splendid weather that has been having of late caused him to dismiss all doubt from his mind and select the gate city of the South for a second tryout. McAleer feels certain that it has been an exceptional spring all over the country and that the cool weather of the first two weeks could not be blamed on Atlanta as it was cool everywhere. He believes that he will have better luck next year. However, there were but two days during the entire stay that the team could not work out a better record than most of the other clubs have had. Manager Jordan, the Atlanta players, and the fans who have been closely connected with the team since its stay here are rejoicing over the news that the Nationals will return. Their gentlemanly conduct while residents of this city has made them solid with everyone connected in any way with the game. Frank Corbin, the young outfielder, of the Nationals, secured by them from Akron in the Ohio and Pennsylvania League, where he hit 318 last season, has been turned over to the Atlanta club by manager McAleer as ground rent man. But McAleer has not cut the strings loose on this fellow, only farming him out under optional agreement, though it is specified that the outfielder will be loaned to Atlanta all during the coming season, and that the option will not be exercised until after the close of the Southern League season. Manager McAleer likes Corbin very much. He believes that with a year in the Southern League, he will be ripe for big league company. Corbin is fast, has a good arm, hits well, and is the, the man that manager Jordan of the Atlanta club picked from the bunch of recruits as the man he wanted McAleer to leave here. There's no chance now of Carly Conway being turned loose. This Youngstown rookie has hit himself into the good graces of manager McAleer and the way he flies around the bases and speeds him up in the outfield is making McAleer wear a broader smile every day. Warren Miller <clears throat> is showing wonderful improvement on the bases of late. He has always been a hard hitter, and with the way he has been going around the bases of late, McAleer is glad that he kept him instead of turning him over to Atlanta. McAleer has taken Conway and Miller under his special care and is offering them encouraging words of advice every time they come up to the plate, coaching them in the outfield and on the bases. It looks now like both Conway and Miller will be carried back to Washington with the rest of lunch. Regulars in the Shamrocks battled to a 2-2 two and two nine-inning tie yesterday, and despite the pleadings on the part of some of the players, McAleer refused to allow them to play it out. The day was great. 
the sun beating down in volumes, and the thermometer registering over the 80 mark for the first time since the team has been there. With the continuance of this weather for the remainder of this day, every man on the club will be ready for the gong when the team leaves here Saturday afternoon at 2.45 o'clock. The Shamrocks threw away several chances to score during the game, getting men on the bases, but either through foolish base running or their over-anxiety to hit at the bad ones, the runners were not pushed across. The score ought to have been at least 6-2 to two and would have been had the men taken advantage of the opportunities as they were offered to them. Bill Otte, world for the regulars, and Dolly Gray for the Shamrocks, as far as pitching went, Dolly had the best of the argument, four in but the sixth inning where the regulars able to do a thing with his delivery. Dolly looks right this spring, and it is freely predicted that the big left-hander will win a majority of his games this season. O.T., on the other hand, was in trouble in practically every inning and with every batter. He would let the batter get him in a hole nearly every time, and in some cases he had men on the bases with none out, and sometimes with only one out, and only a large supply of luck for the regulars with some bad base running by the Shamrocks got Bill a tie game out of the melee. Wid Conroy was out of the game with a stone bruise on his right heel, and he umpired the contest. Schaefer went to second in Conroy's place, and Andy Keefe took Schaefer's place at shortstop. Chief Swain went to left field in Corbin's place. The regulars had their same batting order with the men in the same positions. McAleer decided not to change his catchers after all, but will keep them on the same teams for the remaining two days of their stay there. The Shamrocks tallied one run in the opening round, when Schaefer led off with a three-sacker between Milan and Gessler and scored when Conway hit to Cunningham and the latter threw the ball over Street's head. In the fifth, Summerlot drew a walk and went to third on Bunting's bingle to left field. Ainsmith hit to short and while Bride tagged Bunting and threw to first to get Ainsmith off the bag, Summerlot romped home with his run. The regulars tallied both of their runs in the sixth round. Milan laid down a pretty bunt and beat it out for a hit. Elberfield's infield out, or rather Milan's great speed on the play, got him to second as the play was made to second and then to first. Elberfield being retired, but Milan being safe. Levelt hit to the pitcher, and Milan was caught in a chase between second and third, but he finally eluded all his pursuers and arrived safely at the third cushion. Lelevelt reached second during the commotion. Cunningham drove out a long fly to center field on which Milan scored, and when Gessler pulled a double to center field, Lelevelt scored. This was all the runs for both sides. Yeah, that name is proving to be Lillevelt, and I'm probably saying it wrong anyways. The series now stands six games, one for the regulars, five for the Shamrocks, and three a tie. McAleer went to the outfield and coached Conway and Miller in catching flies for the better part of a half hour, and when he came back, he had a smile on his face. The kids are improving, he said. I believe that both are going to be good men. 
The left field proposition is still the cause of some worry to manager McAleer. Lelevelt is fielding fairly well, but he is not hitting as is his custom, and this slump is not only causing anxiety to his manager, but the rest of the club as well. Jack is popular with his teammates, and a good hitter when in his stride, but unless he picks up some with the willow, he will find himself replaced by some other player. Whit Conroy is spoken of as his successor to Lelevelt, and he's Jack keeps hitting poorly. Wid is in the best of shape, in fact, better shape than in any time since he became a national. But both Conroy and Lelevelt will have to look to their laurels if this youngster, Charlie Conway, continues to hammer the pill the way he has been doing of late. He is stinging the ball right on the nose and getting slashing bingles with them. His double and triple yesterday is a fair sample of what he can do. Conway seems to be the best of the lot now, and he is certain to get a chance to show in some of the games this season. Walter Johnson was working on a spitter all during yesterday morning and had Eddie Ainsmith jumping all over the plate trying to catch it. Dixie Walker saw Johnson at work and tried a few himself, with the result that McAleer jumped them both and made them cut it out. Although Johnson's control is very near perfect, the big fellow had some practice in throwing at a catcher's mitt on the ground about 60 feet away from him. In six throws, he hit the mitt three times. One of the throws landed squarely in the mitt and stuck, the glove turning completely over. I see. Bill Odie is afraid of the balls hit right back at him in the pitcher's box. He invariably pulls away from a hot one through the box. On one occasion yesterday, Street yelled at him, Bite your teeth, Bill, and sit down in front of them. As Bill Odie started to the plate in the third inning, he turned to the bench and said, if ever there was a man in misery, I'm one. Bill's aversion to left-hand pitching and the way he pulls away from them was the reason for the remark. After he had fanned, he said, I haven't even fouled one off left-handers since I've been here. An example of the poor base running that the Shamrocks engaged in the fourth inning yesterday. Conway led off with a double and Swain singled, sending him to third. Street caught Conway off third with a quick snap throw, and then Swain was caught trying to steal second a minute later. Germany Schaefer got a hand when he stepped to the plate in the eighth inning and promptly announced that he was going to break up the game then and there. And he came mightily near succeeding at that. He drove a liner at McBride, but the captain leaped into the air, pulled it down with one hand, and doubled Ainsmith at second. The proposed game between Atlanta and Washington for today will not be played. McAleer decided it would be too much to play a game in the morning and afternoon, too. Hal Chase of the New York Americans was anxious to secure Atlanta for training grounds next spring, but the local club decided that if McAleer wanted to come back, he had first call. Players are on top. We'll receive more money this year than ever before, shouts this headline. Matthewson heads list. American and National League to pay out a cool 
800000 in salaries alone this season. Just imagine it. New York. April 7th. Nearly 400 ballplayers will begin drawing salaries from the 16 major league clubs April 12th, when the 1911 season opens throughout the country. Baseball sharps here figure that before the pennant races end, the Magnets will have paid out more than $800,000 for services rendered. It is conceded that the players in the National and the American League this year will receive more money for their labors than ever before in the history of the game. There is no salary limit in vogue, and the stipends range all the way from $1,500 to nearly 10 times that amount. In the New York Nationals, John McGraw manager, who is not a player, will receive about $12,000 for his work this year. Christy Mathewson is believed to be the highest paid baseball player in the profession. He signed a five-year contract last winter and an annual salary of $10,000, it is said. The two dozen other players on the New York team will average around $2,750 apiece, swelling the total salary list to more than $85,000, a high-water mark and the record in professional baseball. The New York Americans will also receive liberal salaries. Manager Chase will draw about $7,000 well, for his services as manager, captain, and first baseman with a chance to receive a substantial bonus if the Hillmen win the championship. Russell Ford, the team's star pitcher, will get close to $5,000 and the season's payroll will foot up in the neighborhood of $65,000. Among the other big league teams, the pitchers will, as usual, be the star performers on the salary lists. According to current reports, the wages of some of the more important men will run about as follows. Ooms and Bender, Philadelphia, 5000 each. Walsh, Chicago, 6000 Mullen, Detroit, 5000 Adams, Pittsburgh, 5000 Brown, Chicago, 5000 Collins, Philadelphia, 7000 La Jouie, Cleveland, 7000 Wagner, Pittsburgh, 6000 Bob, Detroit, 8000 Practically all the big league clubs except Boston will exceed the $50,000 mark in their salary lists. Aside from the players' salaries, the expenses of each club will include about $8,000 for railroad fares, 6000 for hotel accommodations, 6000 for clerical work, 10000 for rent, and 5000 for uniforms, equipment, and incidentals, or about $35,000 gross. The New York Nationals will top the list of spenders owing to the fact that rent of their grounds is $40,000 a year, which makes the total expenses of the club for the year about $180,000, including the 30000 spent on the Southern training trip and for new players. And in the pertinent comments on happenings in sport by Chad Grillo, if it be true, that Walter Johnson allowed himself to be influenced in his demand for an exorbitant salary by a member of some other team, as is reported. 
that individual will probably be laughing up his sleeves if Johnson decides to return to his farm at Coffeeville. To make Johnson dissatisfied, have him hold out would mean a great deal to some teams who fear to see him on the slab against him, and it would not be at all surprising if it was a scheme to deprive the Nationals of Johnson that he was given such an exalted idea of the amount of money he ought to receive. Report has it that Ty Cobb was the fellow to tell Johnson what salary he should draw from the local club. Johnson has for several years been a stumbling block for the Tigers. They have beat him, but seldom, and to have him out of the way would make things easier for the Detroit team. Methods of this kind have been employed before. There are several instances on record where a rival club has made a player dissatisfied so that it could secure him in a trade or have him out of the game for a while. If Cobb is guilty of instructing Johnson as to the demands he should make, he may have acted sincerely, but incidentally, he may have figured out for the benefit of the Tigers and not Johnson. When the effort to sign Johnson at Atlanta failed, Clyde Milan was asked if there was any chance of Johnson leaving the club and going home if he did not get what he wanted. Milan is Johnson's best friend and roommate among the players, and his reply was to the effect that he did not think there was a chance for Johnson to leave the team, though he thought he would hold out to the very last minute in the hope of getting what he wanted. This seems logical, for Johnson can hardly afford to throw away 6500 just to display the fact that he can be stubborn. Some years ago, a pitcher of Johnson's ability could have made club accede to his demands, but that time has passed. For under organized baseball, a club's claim to a player is absolute. There is no alternative for the player. He must accept what the club is willing to pay, and there are only rare instances where a player is maltreated. The fact of the matter is that ball players are the best-paid men in the athletic world. There has been a constant increase of the players' salaries every year for the past decades, and they are still going up. Condition is going to cut a wide swath during the first two weeks of the season, for it is the teams which are in the best fettle that will beat their stronger rivals who lack condition. There are good reasons for believing that McAleer will have his team on edge for the opening. He has been fortunate in being able to put in many licks while other teams were idle, and this should tell in the early games. For a team like the Nationals, which has usually gotten off badly in the spring, a winning streak at the start would create a wonderful change in the spirit of the players, and there's no telling how great a difference it would make in their showing on the whole. The destruction of the local plant was a fortunate accident in more ways than one. Not only will the park be able to take care of more people on opening day than ever before, but the team was forced to remain at its training camp ten days longer, and thus avoided a lot of bad weather here, which would have kept the players idle and done much to destroy their condition.
According to one expert who is at Hot Springs with the Pittsburgh team, Jack Flynn has shown his superiority over first baseman Hunter in every way since the team went into training. David Davis of the Dispatch comes out flat-footed and says that Flynn is the better man of the two and that he will eventually gain the permanent position on the Pirate team. Flynn is hitting terrifically and is showing much improved speed. Hunter came touted as a wonder and cost the Pittsburgh club $12,000 is doing good work, but according to reports, he's not in Flynn's class. It was an unfortunate break of luck that McAleer did not secure Flynn, for that deal was all arranged when Chicago stepped in and refused to wave on the youngster. McAleer also lost Jimmy Callahan, who would have come here, but felt that Comiskey should be given first chance at him, and Comiskey, of course, needed every player he could get, and grabbed Callahan, who is making good with a vengeance in the practice games. This pair would have probably made the Nationals contenders for the pennant this year. There will be agreeable surprises for local patrons of the game when the new stands at the ballpark are viewed on opening day. Though the miserable weather of the past days has greatly handicapped the work, much better state of affairs will exist at National Park than could be conceived two weeks ago. There will be ample accommodations, and a good idea will be had. The beautiful plant Washington will be able to boast of when the entire work is completed. There will be several larger plants in the circuit, but none will be better equipped or furnish better accommodations than the one now under course of construction. And uh, yeah, there you have our coverage for the 7th of uh, April, 1911. Out of the Washington Star. And yeah, we're still going to play this by ear. It is spring training. Uh, that that was a lot on the senators, and frankly, while if we keep reading about the senators, I will become familiar with these fellows. Many of these names are a total. But this is this also makes it interesting in a certain way. And uh, with that, we're gonna let you get back to whatever it is that you do. And thank you for your ears and listening to this baseball. And uh, if you got comments, corrections, updates, what have you, please feel free send them to this here email address, which is kpqr.torc at gmail dot com. Until next time we meet, set the controls for the heart of the fun.